Welcome to the Bad Roman Podcast. On this show, we talk with veterans, community leaders, Christians, and non-Christians as we explore the entanglement of Christians with the state. The Bad Roman Project was created out of the firm belief that as Christians, we are called to follow Christ, not the state. Here is your host, Craig Hargis. Hey, folks. If you're a regular listener to the show, then you know we have been inviting listeners to contribute to our blog at thebadroman.com. And anyone who contributes to the blog has the option to come on the show and talk more about their article. Today, we have Scott Arnold on the show who fits that description. And we're going to discuss his article, Winning the Battle but Losing the War, The American Church's Political Obsession. Scott, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. How about you? I'm doing good. And I say this a lot when we start, when I record with people is fighting allergies, something I deal with out, living outside of Memphis for some reason. I've never experienced allergies like this before in my life and probably didn't help that I slept with my windows open. It got pretty chilly last night. So before we get started, why don't you, uh, why don't you give us a little background of yourself? Well, I was born in central Pennsylvania, but now, well, south central Pennsylvania. I'm living in Georgia now. And uh, pretty much my whole life, I have grown up in areas that are very um, like hardcore, conservative, Republican. Everybody, if you ask them what religion they hold to, everybody is a professing believer. So if you can imagine taking the dynamics that you would expect in the Bible Belt in the South and putting that in South Central Pennsylvania, that's kind of the type of area that I've grown up in and been around all my life. I grew up in a pretty small town and um, I went to college. I started off in Pennsylvania and ended up transferring to a school down in Georgia. I uh, majored in pastoral ministry and originally I was uh, looking to get in, go straight out of college into uh, full-time ministry and just through some really interesting circumstances over the years that hasn't happened. So right now I live in uh, Northeast Georgia uh, with my wife, Sarah, and our four-year-old daughter, Ashlyn. Yeah, that's pretty much it as far as personal background in a nutshell. Well, you're a, your background as far as growing up in a small town is similar to mine. I grew up in a town called Great Creek, Texas. It's right outside of San Angelo, which is close to Odessa Midland, and about two hours from Odessa Midland, and basically the same type, very conservative for the most part, very red, very Republican, spent most of my political time or my, my entire political life voting as a Republican. You know, that's pretty much what we were taught and broke away from that when Donald Trump was nominated. And to the disdain of many of my family or much of my family, because I got told so many times that, well, if you're not voting for Donald Trump, you're voting for a third party, you're actually voting for Hillary Clinton, which I could not make, make any sense in my head whatsoever. And I heard that a lot and finally drove me to, to anarchy, which I'm happy to be at because it, it makes a whole lot more sense and really aligns with my, my understanding of my faith. So your article got a, a lot of great feedback from people that have been following our project and we shared around social media and I'm happy that you agreed to come on to talk more about it because this is going to be a cool conversation to talk more about this article. But before we get started, I'm kind of curious to know how you heard about our project. You know, it's always interesting to me to see how far reaching a podcast can be. It's, it's kind of, I don't want to use the word amazing, but because of the messages I get, it's, it's, it's from people from all corners of the, the country and even in Canada. So just having the, the reach that we have with the podcast is very surprising to me. I didn't expect it. But how did you find out about us? After um, everything had happened with um, George Floyd and the whole defund the police movement picking back up, it had me interested in, more interested in politics again. And back in uh, 2012, when everything happened with uh, the BLM organization starting, I th- guess it was like pop culture definitions of anarchy and other things. I associated BLM as an organization with uh, being anarchist 
which uh, we know now that it's more Marxist. But in my head at the time when all that started, I was thinking anarchy. And so I was like, why are we going back to this whole defund the police thing? In my mind, I'm going, if we take away the police, we need to do something else. So what is the something else that's being proposed? And um, just from past stuff I've learned, especially for myself, I like going to people who actually hold that view and asking instead of listening to everybody else evaluating that viewpoint. And so I just got on my phone and opened up the uh, podcast app. And I literally just did a search for Anarchist Podcasts. And there's one I downloaded that had basically what they would do is they would read famous anarchist uh, letters, essays, stuff like that. And as I started listening through some of them, I could hear bits and pieces of just kind of the viewpoint that really reminded me of the Sermon on the Mount. And I had read a biography about Bonhoeffer and how he had uh, some anarchist leanings and it was based on the Sermon on the Mount. And I didn't understand until I heard different guys, like I know one of them was Peter Graeber talking about anarchy and what anarchy is. So I was just like, if I'm seeing this connection, then there's got to be groups out there that are anarchists, but from a Christian perspective. So then I just looked up uh, Christian anarchist podcast and Bad Roman was one of the three that I found. Cool, man. That's awesome. I never know how, how we're described in the podcast world, to be honest with you. So that's really cool. Yeah. So before, when you were searching for these podcasts, what was your understanding of anarchy? Was it the the way they portrayed it on, on mainstream media, like burning down buildings and, and throwing rocks and stuff like that? Or was it something different? Because when I first understood anarchy, before I got into libertarian groups and stuff, I understood it to be total chaos. But then you get in these libertarian groups and you start talking to some of these anarchists that are involved with these groups. It's the exact opposite. And it was it was mind blowing to me. And the more I studied it, it was like I told you before we started recording it, I could see how it aligned with my faith as well. But how how were you perceiving anarchy or were you did you already have that understanding when you were searching for these podcasts? I kind of had some interesting uh introductions to anarchy. Of course you have um pop culture and complete and total chaos, but um the other um, introductions I had to actual anarchy are connected to things I reference in my article. So I'm going to start touching on some of that a little bit right now. Um, I think it was my first semester in college. We had a speaker in chapel named uh, David Pierce, and he is the founder of Steiger International. Um, they were a ministry that started in Amsterdam and they actually started off uh, specifically focused on the anarcho-punk scene in Amsterdam. So it would have been, they were founded in the 80s. So it was right whenever the anarcho-punk scene was really peaking in Amsterdam. And so I've, I've heard him speak before. I've read his autobiography and other stuff. And his experience with it was in the anarcho-punk scene, at least the European one, I can't speak anything about the United States. Um, his experience was that they were about chaos and they loved chaos. And in fact, what complicated matters even more was most of the references that I've heard him make in person and also in his autobiography, um, they were actually the groups that they had run-ins with were tightly associated with groups of Satanists. So in his writing, the two are actually almost interchangeable because of how often those um, groups intersected as far as the area that he was dealing with them. So that, that was my first introduction to anarchy as it actually is. The second was that trip to Polish Woodstock that I mentioned in the article. And there was one guy there that I got to talk to who was part of the anarcho-punk scene. And his own statement was, I believe in chaos. Chaos is my God. So that dynamic 
is definitely in the scene. It, it just depends on where you're at in the scene. So that was kind of my introduction and first ever conversation with someone who was an anarchist. So, and you mentioned too, that you're, uh, who you were talking, I don't remember what, who you, you mentioned his name, but I know it was a podcast you were listening to. It was comparing it to the Sermon on the Mount, or you could hear the Sermon on the Mount and some of the stuff they were saying. Yeah, he wasn't making the comparison. It was just, he was more so outlining kind of the ideal society under anarchy and just listening to the different principles that he was talking about. I was kind of like, okay, I can definitely hear from a Christian perspective, how we actually have a foundation for this with the Sermon on the Mount. So I was kind of like, I understand it coming from a biblical perspective, even more than a secular humanist perspective, because I actually have um, that foundation for it. That's cool. Yeah. Sounds very familiar to me, <laughs> just on a different, just different path. Like, because like, when I first started studying anarchy, the more I, the more I understood it for what it really is, it just it's like a light bulb went off in my head. I'm like, wow, this is very similar, if not exactly what we're trying to do as Christians. And once I made that comparison, once I was able to put the two together, man, it was so much easier for me to transition into an to being an anarchist. All right, so let's get into your article a little bit. And like I told you before we were recording, a lot of what you say in this article, some of the stuff that I was dealing with or conversations I was having with friends or, or other Christians leading up to the election. And a lot of them are just convinced that if we get enough of the right people in office, enough enough Christians in office, then things are going to be for the better. And that we have to get more Christians in. And I think we're going to get into this in your article a little bit. But right at, close to the very beginning of your article, you said, it seems that we begin, began equating political power with more influence. This has led to the conclusion that the more political power the church has, the more effective it will be in spreading the gospel and changing culture for the better. These two points have caused many to turn to politics as their savior for the rapidly decaying sense of morality in this country. You ask a question, but does this political power benefit the church's influence to change culture or does it actually destroy it? I want you to expound on that a little bit because I think you do an excellent job of, of describing this, what, what, what I was witnessing with, with, or, or hearing from other Christians leading up to the election. Yeah, I think just as I was growing up, uh, the one thing that stuck out that kind of has been a lot of what's pushed me more um, towards uh, anarchy is it actually has been the church's involvement in politics. I think what uh, has always stood out to me, and it's just been growing more and more, is how whenever we take the gospel uh, and we try to bring it in into the political realm, there's a lot of pieces that get lost. I think the easiest way to explain it would be to just think about specific laws. One example I discussed with my family is if you take the idea of how um, different groups have tried to put forward different laws on abortion, and some of it could be with the heart of, actually caring for people and not just saying, hey, we want to, this is all just a political, let's just completely annihilate abortion with one bill. And I think that just for uh, discussion here, I'm going to focus on that issue. And a lot of people look at it that way to the point where when a bill's presented, all you have are the regulations in that bill. You don't know what's going on behind it. So one bill that I'd heard about involving abortion, and this is going to be reading into it and speculating on my part, so I'm not saying this was the case at all, but um, I think it was in Louisiana. They wanted specific credentialing uh, for doctors in order to be allowed to perform uh, that procedure. And from my standpoint, we could look at that in one of two ways and just go, okay, this is trying to just annihilate the issue or um, kind of in the hypothetical sense going, okay, right now it exists in culture and it does not show any sign of going away in the near future. So the least we can do is like try to keep a person safe 
And so just kind of that heart in protecting people involved and adding safeguards. I know that's probably a horrible example, but it's like you lose the heart of that because all people are going to hear are, this is what you can and can't do. And the whole argument is going to be, this is what you can and can't do. And there's no looking at the why. So like, why are you proposing that we can't do this or should do that? And I think that's where Christianity really loses out in jumping in the politics because that's exactly like what the Pharisees did. It was they had the law and it was all about enforcing the law to the letter, but to the point they lost God's heart. Like one of the biggest reasons the Pharisees were angry at Jesus half the time were just the different things he would do on the Sabbath. Like there's different passages where they would be angry to the point of wanting to kill him because he healed somebody on the Sabbath. So technically he worked on the Sabbath, a day he was not supposed to be able to do any work. And so it's little things like that that I think build up and it kind of just really turns the culture actually against Christianity because it can be perceived as, I guess, almost kind of a stereotypical fundamentalist kind of view on life. Well, I, I think what's really one of my biggest frustrations, I've mentioned this numerous times on the show, one of my biggest frustrations and what really one of the reasons is that spurred this project for me and the people that got involved when we were starting is the is to watch how Christians were trying to use politics to force their will on on others, and they seem to forget that not everybody in this world is a Christian, and so it, you never saw Jesus doing this. It was all about peace and, and compassion for for one another. He was not trying to use the law to try to get his message across. And one thing that always was that kept being being brought up to me leading up to the election was. We have to get more like-minded people in office. When I say like-minded, they're saying they're meaning Christian to protect our liberty. That's garbage, man. If you're, you think that the the state has any interest in protecting your liberty, how many Christians have we had elected? How many professing Christians have we had elected? And how much worse have things gotten? The entanglement of the state with the Christian is not not anything that Jesus ever taught. And I think it, I think you're right. I think it really, it distorts the message that we're trying to get across as Christians. And it really distorts the message of Jesus Christ. There was nothing about what he taught that said, go get that guy elected and your life is going to be better. No, he said, love your neighbor, love your enemy. It was very, it was very simple. His message was very simple. Does that, does that sound familiar to you? Does that sound like something that you were trying to get across in the article or? Oh yeah, that's um, pretty much has been. Uh, the attitude everywhere that I've grown up is just, we have to put uh, Christians in office. We have to, I think it goes back to what you were saying about using politics to force our views on others. And it's, I'd heard someone talk about it before. I can't remember who it was or where it was because it's been so long, but just the idea of how as the church, there's different things that we've given up and we've allowed the government to take over roles that we should have. And for that context, they were specifically mentioning Jesus' concern for the poor as one instance. And so it's like now, instead of just with our context and how the church and state tend to get so intermingled, it's like now, instead of the church necessarily having the feel that same weight and that same burden for actually reaching out and caring for the poor. Now it's like, Hey, our hypothetically, at least our tax dollars help this or this organization, which may is either be a nonprofit or a government organization takes care of that. So it's almost like responsibilities that the church had in culture. We've shifted that weight to other areas. To the state. We're trying to outsource it to the state, and which is completely contrary to what Jesus taught. I mean, Jesus outright rejected any political power when offered to him. He didn't try to outsource what he was doing to the state, and that's what Christians are trying to do today. And if you if you look, at, and you mentioned tax dollars, 
if you look at these tax dollars that they say that they're going to use to help certain people, those the majority of our tax dollars are used to kill other people. If we're going to be very blunt about it and be honest about it, the majority of our spending in the United States is on the military. And that military is used to destroy other countries. That is nothing. That's completely opposite of what Jesus taught us. Yeah, and I think just um, going back a little bit to the outsourcing, it's like we've let that get to a point where it's just so accepted that I feel like as everything went, now we're trying to do the exact same thing with morality. And so it's trying to basically use government to control the morals within this country when honestly there's a lot of times where there's moral struggles within the church that we don't want to face. I think like the culture around can look and go, okay, you want to pass laws against this, this, and this, but looking at the church and looking at statistics and um, just throwing a couple not specific statistics, but concepts out there be like, well, what do, let's say like divorce rates look like in the church as compared to the rest of culture? What does like even porn use look like in the church and outside of culture? And from my understanding, those two statistics, it's very hard to distinguish the two, that they are very close together. And so it's almost like we have a moral problem where we don't want to face it. And so it kind of brings us back to that attitude of there's issues where we've passed off weight and now it just opens the door for outsourcing morality to the state. Which is completely asinine when you think about it. I mean, outsourcing morality to the state, do you not see what the state's doing? There's nothing that I can see that is moral about the state. Nothing whatsoever. And I think the problem probably um, part of it is combining it with the assumption of if we put a lot of believers in office, then we will have a quote unquote Christian state, which I mean, I think we all (laughs) have probably, at least if you've read any other anarchist articles or listen to podcasts from the Christian anarcho scene already are kind of like, that's not going to work because the state in and of itself isn't Christian. That's kind of, that's the stance I take on it. And I know you're right there as well. And most of the articles I've read and podcasts that I've listened to all kind of take this, the stance of the state cannot be Christian. And I think that has what has been driving me absolutely nuts uh, with this election is we see the state as being Christian. And it can't be. I think you're I think you're exactly right. It can't be Christian. It, it's it's completely opposite. Everything they do is completely opposite of the teachings of Christ. I remember reading something in a book, I don't mean to cut you off, but there's something, it, remind, it reminded me of something. We had Keith Giles and Jason Porterfield on one of our episodes, and Jason said something. He said, for the first, and I'm paraphrasing, but for the first 400 years of Christianity or the early church, they were always working on the outside, on the fringes, helping the people that needed to be helped. They weren't seeking political power to work from within the political spectrum. They was always working on the out. And you look at the church today, they're seeking that power. They're seeking to get inside the, the political realm to work through that to get their message out. And it corrupts the message. Well, what, what you just said um, kind of brings up a, another point that I had uh, been thinking about and getting ready for this. And it's uh, biblically, if we look at leaders who some of them weren't leaders, others were leaders, but just people who had close positions to kings in their time and how history remembers those governments. I mean, just looking at the Old Testament, you have Joseph, second in command of all of Egypt. Egypt by no means ever <laughs> became a quote, what we would consider anything that would look remotely close to how we would picture a uh, Christian government. You had 
Daniel, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were all governors. Daniel was next to kings and both with Babylon and the Medes and the Persians, you have Esther, Nehemiah. So, I mean, right there, you have a bunch of figures from the Old Testament who were like obviously following God and living godly lives, but history does not remember any of those governments (laughs) by any means being anything that looked like what we would consider a Christian government. But at the same time, you can see that they left the, in certain cases where they left their mark. Specifically thinking of Daniel, I've heard speculation from scholars that the, the only, that what kind of led to the wise men coming from the East when Jesus was born was because they would have been from somewhere around where the Babylonian Empire would have been. And Daniel being kind of the head wise man of his time makes sense that someone from that area would have gotten teachings if he left prophetic books and stuff and like scriptures we know it pieces of it in that kingdom but again looking at those kingdoms we would not consider them christian by any stretch of the imagination that's exactly right now getting back to the article there's a portion in it and you, you said it's a little bit long. I'm going to read it. It says, what is the end game in winning this war? Aside from implied answers such as freedoms for Christianity and comfortable faith, I have never heard anyone clearly define what the church is hoping to achieve through all the political bat- battles. And I think we've been talking about this a little bit, but the answers, freedoms for Christianity and comfortable faith only benefit the church at best. And at worst, they result in the suppression and censoring of all other religions and philosophies. Neither scenario brings positive change and influence to this nation because more often than not, either case inflames anger against the church and promotes backlash from the rest of society. And I think that's what Christians tend to forget sometimes, if not all of the time, when they're trying to push their agenda through the political realm, is that not everybody's a Christian in this world. So you're not going to reach these people through political power. You're just going to push them away. Jesus does not bring people in by using the political side of it. He brought them in by speaking a message of love and of peace. That's how he brought people in. And the people that were following were were willing to die for him. That's how much they believed what he said. Now, there's a lot of people that are willing to die for the government too. But what what message is the government teaching? And do you think you're going to get your message of of Jesus Christ to the government? I don't see it happening. You want to expound on that a little bit? Because the freedom for Christian and comfortable faith is something I heard continuously, like I was saying, leading up to the election. It's not all about you, man. You're supposed to be working to help other people. Do you agree with that? Yeah, and I think that that has basically been what's kind of thrown me into a really weird point in politics is seeing that is um, just sitting back and looking at all the different court cases that have been brought up over the years that the church has won. I'm kind of like, we are not, looking at this for what it is because i keep i always hear the term religious freedom thrown around and for a while i i would have agreed that it was about religious freedom and then i guess it would have been kind of senior high beginning of college i started questioning that is it really religious freedom that we're fighting for especially in the political arena and um I can give a couple examples of why I don't feel that's an accurate statement. One would be fighting to put prayer into schools uh, through the court system. I have nothing against being able to pray in Jesus' name in schools. I have no problem with that. Where I have a problem with this is fighting it through the court system because I know that a lot of people that's kind of the main focus is we can pray in Jesus name in the school. But if you are fighting for religious freedom, that means that the um, Hindu has just as much right to pray in school to, in the name of whatever God they worship from uh, the Eastern pantheon. It means that uh, the Muslim has the right to pray in the name of Allah And it even means that the Satanist has the right 
to pray in the name of Satan in the school. And if you have a problem with any of those ones, with anything that I just said happening in the school, it's like you set a legal precedent there. So you are fighting for all religions as soon as you go to court because all religions are to be recognized the same under the law. That's the way this country was set up. And I think we forget that. And I think uh, one of the greatest cases of it that I heard about happened in Arkansas, where there was a group of Christians that fought in court to keep a plaque of the Ten Commandments in a courthouse. And that case was won. Within, I don't know how many months after, a group of Satanists came forward and were like, we find this symbol offensive, so we want a symbol of our own in the courthouse. So instead of a plaque, it was a six-foot goat idol. I can't remember its name because it's this specific god with a giant skull throne with a pentagram on it as well and his hands in the as above, so below symbol. So it's got numerous occult and satanic references going with it. And I just remember hearing one one local politician was quoted as saying it'll be a cold day in hell before that happens. And I'm like, the the legal precedence for it has just been won. I remember this vividly because I lived in Arkansas for 25 years before moving to Tennessee. And I worked for the statewide newspaper. I printed newspapers and this was in the newspaper constantly. And I remember, I remember following all of this. And at the time, I was like, it will be a cold day in hell before they put this <laughs> put this statue up of this of this uh, the satanic uh, statue up because I was right along with that. No, we're not doing that. But the Ten Commandments should be should be left up. I remember all of this, and I, I think it's funny you brought that up. Yeah, and I think like later on in my article where I talk about um, winning more cases, like I can see it happening, but we're creating a problem that we don't realize and that we don't think about. Because right now, we still have a lot of freedom of speech. There's some annoyances and like some times that will be censored, but by and large, I would consider most of those annoyances rather than like a persecution of any kind or anything like hardcore opposition. Now I'm not I'm not talking about every single case, but by and large, what I see would be more annoyances. But like the court cases I mentioned set a precedent. And even I think one that's going to illustrate this even better is the case uh, that hit the Supreme Court where about the um, guy that refused to do custom cakes for a wedding because the couple was gay. The whole argument in that case is basically I'm refusing to do this service because I morally object to the personal views of the customer. That's essentially what it is. And it's like, I completely understand where he was coming from. And I understand that it would be a hard struggle. But looking at it from a legal standpoint, that's kind of a really bad precedent to be fighting against. because. For me, I've just kind of been wondering how long is it going to be before someone would do the same thing to a Christian and be like, well, you're a Christian, so I believe that basically like you're a bigot against this group, this group, and this group, and I'm morally opposed to anyone who's against these things, so I'm not going to serve you. And it's like I can just see all the people celebrating and fighting for that case well, for the initial cake case, turning around and flipping out and trying to sue this guy, but the case they just won is going to be the precedence used against them. So we kind of have this really weird, it's almost like we say religious freedom, it makes us feel affirmed in it and feel better about it. But when we break it down, we're really only fighting for Christianity and we're setting some really crazy precedents while doing it. Speaking of the guy that would not bake the cake, he's within his right to do that, in my opinion. But it's a really 
bad business practice, I think, to exclude people based on something you believe. You know what I mean? Yeah. I've tossed kind of the idea around with some of my family. I like I know people who have um done like Christian tattoo shops. But I'm kind of like, as a tattoo artist, you know it's coming. Sooner or later, you're gonna have someone that wants like pentagrams, satanic symbols, pinup designs, stuff that as a believer you are gonna have some moral issues with. It's a weird line to walk with the culture we're in. I would definitely say that. Right. I was going to hit on one more point on your article, and then I want to talk about the Polish Woodstock that you talk about. This is very interesting to me. But before that, you and we don't really have to go into this, but I like what you said. You said, the more I see the church rely on politics, the more I see the church lose its voice and influence in culture. Society is fed up with the political antics and hateful rhetoric that has now crept into the church. The disdain for religion entering into the political arena has only grown as the war has raged on. And that is so true, man. Like trying to get across to people what, what I believe it's turned around on me because what they how they're witnessing how Christians are behaving when it comes to politics. It's ugly. It is so ugly. Like I said in the beginning, this is something that spurred our project was basically frustration, frustration of the Christian entanglement with the state and frustration with how. Christians are behaving because of their entanglement with the state. And it's only getting worse. It seems to be getting worse as time goes on. And I think we're making headway to a point, but people at some point have to get out of their fear of not having political power. We have a king that is greater than any of these earthly kings. And he's told us more than once, what are you worried about? If we just focus on the message of Jesus Christ, I think it's going to all end up for the good for everybody and stop trying to force our will through political power. Would you like to add anything to that? Yeah, I think uh, one of the other things that I've noticed that is causing a massive problem right now, and I think I mentioned it a little bit in my article, if I remember correctly, is just there's this tendency within the church as we kind of have this clash with culture instead of actually finding ways to engage the church's tendency Again, this is large-scale, broad strokes, not true of every church, but more of what I've seen is the church seems to like like to retreat back inside of just kind of our Christian bubble and our Christian subculture. And the problem is the the more you entrench yourself in that, you kind of begin to lose touch with what's going on around you in culture. And I think where that's really hurting the church right now is it's not just in having issues with seeing everything that's going on in the culture. It's now you're fired up and politically charged and you're surrounding yourself with numerous people who are just as wound up and politically charged in the same way. And so if you get a bunch of people that are kind of all just kind of create this echo chamber it just ups the intensity of it. And so you're desensitized to it. It's like the frog in the boiling water where the temperature starts low and you bring it up to a boil. And so what I feel like is happening is there was already a lot of harsh rhetoric within the church. There has been for as long as I can remember, especially when it comes to foreign policy or immigration policies. There's been a lot of really kind of aggressive rhetoric. And that's been growing more and more. And I think a lot of it is we've isolated ourselves and just kind of been in this echo chamber for so long. Everyone has kind of got themselves hyped up to the point where they don't realize how the rhetoric comes across and how much it's escalated. Because there's definitely has been an escalation in the rhetoric more than I've seen, like in previous years. Even just looking back to 2016, I would not have considered myself anywhere near an anarchist in 2016. And looking at it, everyone was, it was kind of like how they treated this election as far as voting. It was almost like it was your Christian duty to vote and your vote had to go to the Republicans. So by default, it had to be for President Trump. That was kind of uh, how everything was, at least in the area that I was in. 
And I just looked at it and I was kind of like, oh, and then my libertarian friends threw in, uh, you don't have to choose the lesser of two evils, go with libertarian and uh, vote your conscience. And I just was looking across the board at all candidates and I was just kind of like, just with my personal convictions, I can't in good conscience vote for a single one of these people. <laughs> and so that's kind of how I fell. And that's where that I think was where drifting more towards anarchy started for me was just realizing like, wow, I lean more towards the conservative side of things. I'm like, we we're trying to create for lack of a better terms, I'll call it a pseudo theocratic government. And I can't stand behind that. And so that's where I was kind of like, I can't really, I don't fit in with the GOP. And then I'm like, Democratic Party, I have a lot of disagreements with. And that issue is dominantly what brought me to the whole point of anarchy. Yeah, I mean, speaking of 2016, I ended up voting way third party. I voted for Daryl Castle with the Constitution Party because at the time I was studying the Constitution. Nobody else was talking about the Constitution, but Daryl Castle was. So I voted for him. I mean, I didn't have a chance. But people, when I would tell people that in these libertarian groups, well, they're just based off of theocracy. I didn't really know what that meant at the time. I'm like, but he's talking about the Constitution and your candidate's not. <laughs> so I was going to vote for him, you know. And so my study of the Constitution is actually what led me to anarchy. And I know a lot of anarchists that have gone down that path as well. But that's how I got to where I'm at, thankfully. When you say vote in your conscience, man, I can't. My conscience tells me not to vote for anybody ever again like i just i can't i can't bring i i can't take part in that anymore because it's just so vile to me every aspect of the political like the election cycles and everything that goes on in, in politics is just so vile to me it's just disgusting to me and i can't in my own brain i can't do it somebody suggests well you could go out and vote and not tell anybody i said no i can't you don't understand what goes on in my head because <laughs> i'll be fighting my way all the way to the voting booth and then i'll be pissed off at myself the entire time afterwards no i'm not gonna i'm not gonna participate in it because i tend to beat myself up and i'd be beating myself over the next four years because i because I, I i encourage the political system and i'm not going to do that anymore hey folks craig here and i'd like to let y'all know we are always looking for writers to contribute to our blog i don't care if you have any experience or not two or three of our contributors had no prior experience writing and it turns out they have a real knack for it our project coordinator helps them put the articles together, and she publishes them on our website and Facebook page, and you will also have the option to come on the show and go more in-depth about your article. So if you like what we're doing at The Bad Roman and would like to try your hand at writing, then send us an email at thebadromanpodcast at gmail.com. We're having a blast with this project, and we would love for you to join us in helping promote it. Now back to the show. Before I let you go, I want to talk about Polish Woodstock. And I'm going to kind of just let you set the scene and, and tell us what you were doing there and and what you saw go down. Because this is all kind of, it's pretty interesting to me. I didn't, I never heard of Polish Woodstock, but the idea that you guys were there spreading the message of Jesus and how y'all were received was, would have caught me off guard as well. But why don't you tell us a little bit about that? All right. So... I'll just start explaining what it is. It is the largest outdoor music festival in Europe. I think they usually get around half a million, if I remember the numbers right. So basically, it's exactly what it sounds like when we say Polish Woodstock. It's like an outdoor rock concert. There's, I forget how many different stages they had. I think like five. Heavy drug use, heavy drinking as... Our group leader described it, beach rules as far as clothes. Yeah, it, it was a very intense atmosphere at times. The tent that we stayed at, we were right on the road that led up to the main gate. And every single night, the whole time we were uh, in the tent, you would literally see an ambulance leave every 30 minutes. Or no, every 15 minutes, actually. And that was consistent the whole time we were there. About every 15 minutes, you had an ambulance go off scene. Inside the event itself, they actually had four-wheelers that had uh, trailers that were modified gurneys. And you would see those every 15 minutes to every half hour, typically, with someone. 
that had either OD'd or like mosh pit injuries. <laughs> it's it's not quite as chaotic as it sounds, but it, it it's still pretty chaotic. Um, the place was a giant dust bowl because it's an open field, <laughs> like like it was a very open area, but dirt. <laughs> So like there was just a nasty haze. Like I did not understand when we first got there, why I saw people with like any kind of mask you can think of, or like one guy had brought a gas mask and stuff like that. (laughs) We see that all the time now. Yeah. Basically it was, yeah. (laughs) All the cloth face coverings and I didn't get it till we went closer to the main stage and you find out that whole place is like a giant dust bowl and, So that's kind of the atmosphere that we were in. And the music scene that they had set there was crazy. I I really, though we were there, just did not really get take the time to go check out any of the shows. But just to give you an idea of how diverse this was, on the main stage, at different points, they had bands like Judas Priest and the Foo Fighters. They had like, it was, I forget if it was, Arch Enemy or Unleash the Archers, one of those two metal bands there. So they had a ton of, on one hand, you had power metal, 80s metal, all the way to black metal, and then fusion and funk. And in the middle of all of this, you also have uh, the Hare Krishnas had a stage. So it was like a live, like, yoga stuff and whatever kind of bands they had for that (laughs) and a a punk rock stage that was like not even a hundred yards away from that one so it's like you have the Hare Krishnas like a hundred yards not even a hundred yards away from a punk rock stage (laughs) stuff going on on each stage it was it was very interesting how it was all set up (laughs) I just try to picture all of this going on in my head it just sounds like something out of a weird movie that I wouldn't be able to keep up with at all. It, it kind of was at times. <laughs> so, so basically what our group did was um, we had a tent kind of on the main drag where you're coming in. So we were set up not far from where all of us were camping out. So basically, if you were shuttled to the event, you had to pass us. So we had this green army tent, and we would do kind of like breakfast sandwiches and so like part of the group would get up early and we did it on rotation and just make a bunch of stuff and then that would be open for like a couple hours and we had a surge strip there where people could uh plug in their phones to charge them i think we had some drinks there and that was pretty much it so basically people would come and then we just hung out with them and talked and some that uh, had been there in the past or at least had heard of it. And so that was kind of one of the people that uh, my wife and I ended up talking to. They basically came looking to see what we had to say about uh, different specific questions. (laughs) So that was, that kind of takes you off guard because here in the States, it's like when you're doing an outreach, you don't expect people coming up to you and it's like you're trying to start the small talk and just build into having a serious discussion. And so that's kind of how we saw everything going. And we were kind of at that point with this guy. And then the next thing we know, he's like, so what's your belief about this or this? (laughs) His first question was, so how long have you been a part of this religion? And no one had said anything about religion, period, up to this point. So I think that the conversation with him was one that actually gave a lot of perspective into the struggles between, in Poland, it was specifically the Catholic Church and just culture at large. Because I remember talking to him, I asked him, and it still wasn't clear on what the terminology would be here. So just simplest terms, he was a practicing pagan and he was bisexual. And because of just that second point, like he had grown up in a Catholic home and he had basically rejected Catholicism over their stances on different issues. And he had told us that when his, I think it was when he was in his teens, his parents took him to see a priest there um, specifically about uh, that second point that I had brought up about him. And he was basically told to his face, 
by a priest that it would be better if basically somebody murdered him than for his life to continue. And so that kind of mentality, like he's completely against the church. And I'm kind of like, I think that's what upset me the most is seeing stuff like that and knowing that you, once you pull that kind of stuff in the politics, it's just that much worse and it hits culture that much worse in the face. Now I, that's an extreme example I know, but just seeing the damage that did as far as him being open to the gospel at all. Like basically the only thing he wanted to know from us was where we stood on homosexuality and that was it. And so it was kind of like just willing, well, not willing to hear the gospel just over that one point because of the way that that had been thrown in his face like that. And so I think that was the hardest thing to see. Well, y'all may have planted some seeds. You don't know. I mean, because of something y'all, y'all said to him, and maybe it stuck with him. Yeah, and that's that's kind of what I walked away for with the hope of. But um, that was kind of what we ran into a lot, actually, there was as soon as you said that you were a Christian, your conversation was done 90% of the time, which... For my wife and I, our conversations were done about 98% of the time as soon as we said a single word because people uh, that were there did not like speaking with people who English was their first language. There's this real thing where culturally there just seems to be an attitude of kind of like, I know, I kind of know enough English to get by, but my English is awful. So they do not like speaking to native to people where it's like English is your first language <laughs> and they and they can tell and I mean some of them you would not know that English is a second or third language they're that fluent in English and that good at expressing themselves but that kind of created a real um, barrier for us but then we had another guy <laughs> from our group that I forget where he was from, but I mean, he was English as a second language. He's like, what do you mean? Nobody speaks English and won't talk to you because they can't speak English. I've only been talking to people in English. And we're like, it's because you're not American <laughs> and dominantly English speaking. So were y'all, did y'all give, did y'all have anybody? I mean, you said 98% or 90%. Was there anybody that you saw that was receptive to what y'all were saying or was it pretty much? Um, I noted as far as the conversations I was personally involved with, um, just kind of funny side note here, I like cringed every time I felt like, hey, I should go talk to this person because as soon as I'd start walking up, I'd see an anarchy A and be like, here we go again. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, yes, I would end up going to try to start a conversation with the whole anarcho scene here. So that was kind of an irony that happened with all of this. <laughs> well, maybe you could have started a conversation about anarchy and then led it into Christ. Well, see, I didn't know enough about an I didn't knew like zilch about actual anarchy at the time. Oh, it was gotcha. only the anarcho punk stuff that I knew. So it was, yeah, it was interesting, but God definitely has a sense of humor sometimes with this stuff. Yes, he does. But <laughs> I can look I can look at my life and tell that he's been laughing a lot and having fun with it. The thing I saw that was the most um, broke the ground the most, and this is kind of what Steiger tends to do, how they approach it is a lot of times, especially when they're doing more um, creative evangelistic outreaches where it's looking using utilizing art more is they will do things to portray Jesus and the different elements of the gospel but they will not explicitly state at the front side what they are talking about and so it was when that was going on I could see people connecting really well we had a moment there that was pretty uh it was just something really fascinating to watch where we did not have permission to do this, but we did it and it, it turned out really good and it was pretty fun. So um, the guy that was leading our team, his name is uh, Luke Greenwood. 
Um, he's the director of Steiger in Europe, so he's their European director, and he's also the frontman of a riot rock band that they have. And so his band was with us a few of the days that we were there. And so we weren't sure how this would go over. So what we did was they decided to play a show inside the festival. And so what we did was uh, everybody took one piece of gear. And so I'm talking like an entire sound system, amps, full drum set. (laughs) So like the entire setup, like minus stage or lights for a five piece band. And we took it in in pieces and we set up not far from the Hari Krishna stage, ironically. <laughs> so we're so we're kind of this unauthorized show about to start on the sidewalk between the punk rock stage and the Hari Krishna stage. And I'm standing there waiting for how uh, to see how long security is going to let <laughs> us do this because I'm like, here in the States, you wouldn't even have made it through the gate. And like the whole time we're, we were walking in, we're like coming up on the gate and I'm holding a drum and I'm like, this is, <laughs> I just don't even know. <laughs> so like, I'm nervous about how this is going to go. Cause we have no idea what's going to happen once we start bringing the stuff in and someone at the gate, like has the official badge for working for the event. He just points at me and he's like, you come here. And I'm like, Oh, great. Here we go. (laughs) Didn't even make it in the gate. And he, um, had, I guess was on staff as a photographer. And so he wanted to get a picture of someone that was walking around with this drum from a drum (laughs) kit. I was like, yeah, okay. (laughs) Anyway, what ended up happening was we set up and we ended up doing, I think it was two sets and the sets were actually done they're a riot rock band, so it was set kind of almost to like a protest format. So the idea was protesting essentially uh, the viewpoint, different viewpoints of secular humanism <laughs> and just challenging how society views different things like um, people's worth and that there's really nothing beyond this life, those kind of topics. And the thing that was probably the most fascinating to watch was again, just with the different bands there, you have a huge cross section of people. So we had just picture having anywhere from hippies to anarcho punks at the same show. And that's, and everyone in between. And that was a crowd there. And some of them I had actually seen kind of trying to mess with some of the other outreaches we were doing, to be honest, like mess up stuff (laughs) that we were working on. So I'm like, I don't know how this is going to go over because I knew Luke at the very end would give a very explicit gospel message and he did. And I did not see anyone like flip out. And I mean, I was seeing people hold like with alcohol all around me. So I'm like, if, if there's a time where people are really going to kind of let their guard down and start yelling and try to interrupt stuff, it's when they're not sober. And there were a lot of people around us who were not sober, but they did not do anything while he was speaking. What I found even more surprising was how much Luke actually connected the gospel with that huge cross section of people. You could watch their faces and see them getting it and it connecting. And then beyond that, it was like he basically at the end did an altar call right there. So it was like I saw people responding but it was like there were people there that I could tell just did not agree with the message whatsoever. And I mean, you expect that, especially in that kind of a venue, but they didn't say anything. They didn't yell. They did nothing to try to interrupt what was going on. And actually while Luke prayed, a lot of them just stood there quite respectfully, honestly. And then they just turned around and walked off as soon as he was done. So it was just interesting to see that versus when we were trying other types of outreach, as soon as like as soon as it was known that you were a Christian, the conversation just got insanely hard. Because in that context, everybody, or at least on large scale, people who aren't a part of the church are very confused, especially in Europe, by the whole issue of denominations. 
And so basically to them, what they see in the Catholic church represents every Christian denomination. And it's just kind of like, they don't get the different distinctions that are there. And so the view they have of the Catholic church influences the view on uh, the church as a whole. And so again, with uh, what we've been talking about in the church being involved in politics, the Catholic church there is very involved in politics and in a lot of ways has done what the American church wants to do here as far as gaining that political influence and that political power. And they are not well liked for it. And so a lot of people had a bad taste in their mouth. I mean, even, and I talk about it in the article, but the prime example of um, what we were seeing, there's a perfect example right in the middle of this festival in that the organizers are very good friends with the Hare Krishnas, and that's how the Hare Krishnas have a stage. And the Catholic Church there had uh, requested a spot there as well, and the organizers there said no, because they did not want the Catholic Church there because just the groups that they have, they knew that that would just kind of clash with. And so the Catholic Church bought part of the land that the festival is held on. And it is a very prominent place on the grounds. Like you have to pass it. You cannot be at that event and not pass it at some point or another. And so I think that that just kind of really, it gave just kind of a physical reminder of just kind of the um, mentalities that we were seeing and the attitudes that we saw towards the church while we were in there. Are you? Let me ask you something. Are you still in touch with Luke at all? Not on any constant, regular basis, but like around holidays or something, I might reach out and say hi. So it's like there's still a connection there, but not constant. Well, the reason I ask is because I'd like to have you back on, and, and maybe you could talk to him about coming on. I'd like to talk to him and, and both of y'all about what, what he's doing with that. That's really cool what he did with that, with y'all setting that up. And I don't know if he'd be interested in, in coming on and talking to us about it a little bit more, but. Yeah, and um, something, too, for anyone that's interested in looking into it more, um, that band is called The Unrest. They also have another band that their founder started, and it was geared originally towards the anarcho-punk scene in Amsterdam called No Longer Music. And they have uh, basically the first part of their show is almost more like um, kind of like a just a normal punk rock having fun. Like they have, they have a lot of theatrics with it involved with it and um, like stuff going on on a projector screen, but then they have like a flamethrower guitar and uh, they have a flaming Mohawk helmet that they break out for a song. So just some really great like (laughs) punk style antics that they do with that part. And then it goes into a drama uh, of the gospel and they have um, videos on uh, YouTube where you can see like entire concerts that they've done and they've played some places even crazier than Polish Woodstock to say the least. Well, yeah, man, let's uh, I don't know if you could set that up or maybe reach out to him and see if he'd be interested. I mean, that music scene is a lot different than when I listen to. I'm more of a <laughs> country and Western type guy, but yeah, I don't know if, if he'd be interested or not, but I'd love to have him on and have you back on with him and we could sit here and talk and just have a conversation. Yeah, I can contact him and find out. All right, cool. Why don't you go ahead and plug what you want to plug and then I'm going to let you get right back to your day. One of the big things I was definitely wanting to plug was Steiger stuff, which I've already mentioned, uh, those two bands. And uh, really, if you go to their website, I'm going to double check and just make sure I get it right because I think it's just Steiger I've got it right here. It's uh, HTTPS Steiger.org. You've got it in your article. Yeah, that'll give you a lot of information about um, what all they do. Um, their main focus is uh, what they refer to as the global youth culture, which would be, um, they define that as anyone who's like 18 to 35 is kind of their main target group. And um, just with how globally co- connected we've become, there's a lot of shared values internationally. So like their teams in Europe, uh, the Middle East, 
and their team here in the States, they all, it's kind of like just seeing how like music, for instance, is bringing very similar cultural values across the world. It's really just learning how to communicate is what their main focus is, is making the gospel relevant in what scene you're in. So even like this for our, for our context here would be just learning, like understanding our place and connecting with whatever scene we're in. So that's kind of the focus of Steiger. And they have a podcast, Provoke and Inspire. They talk about anything from art, to politics, to current events. They've had uh, some guys on, like uh, Greg Boyd's been on there a couple times. Shane Clay- Claiborne, he's been on there. So stuff like that. It's more kind of a practical theology and just what does it look like to be a Christian wherever God has put us in whatever sphere of influence we're in. And just one other thing that I'd like to plug, I have... Um, a blog that my wife and I just started not too long ago. It's a Wix site. So uh, the URL for that is Phoenix Orientum. And so Orientum is O-R-I-E-N-T-E-M dot Wixsite.com slash blog. And so basically I have a little bit of political stuff on there right now, but the dominant focus of that is to kind of more take theology and apply it. So um, I'll just use the two uh, political blogs I have on there as an example of what I mean by that. So one, I talk about what political party would Jesus endorse and just kind of coming at it from a biblical perspective, I said, conclude that it's really No party, there's no specific party because no party fully represents the gospel. It's kind of you have the strengths and weaknesses of showing the gospel in some ways and completely negating it or doing the opposite in other. Or one where I break down why I don't believe we can have a Christian state, but it's looking at it through uh, just taking different scriptures and applying it to it and being like, this is biblically why I don't think we can do that. So that's more kind of how that blog is geared and steadily getting away from politics i think i like it man i like it yeah folks go check out his his blog and if you haven't read his article at the badroman.com winning the battle but losing the war the american church's political obsession go check it out we got some great feedback on it and i think you're going to enjoy it if you haven't read it already and if you have read it go read it again because i've read it more than once myself all right buddy i'm gonna let you go and let you get back to your day all right thanks for having me yes sir Thanks for joining us this week on the Bad Roman Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the show wherever you find your podcasts to never miss an episode. And while you're at it, if you like what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, it really helps people find us. 100% of donations are given to local charities in Memphis, Tennessee. To learn more about the Bad Roman Project and to find show notes, please visit thebadroman.com.